Welcome to the Tingo Investing Podcast, where we help you make a better investment and retirement portfolio. We're here to help whether you are a professional investor or a beginning investor, because we believe when everybody is better off, we will love each other even more. So come join and listen to our podcast that is unlike any other financial podcast you've listened to. Welcome, podcast listeners. We're back. Where have we been? We'll get to that in a second. But first, let me introduce Dr. Daniel Crosby. He's going to be today's guest on the episode, and he is a trading psychologist. Because trading is so difficult mentally, it goes against a lot of rewired biology, many hedge funds actually employ in-house trading psychologists to monitor their traders and prevent poor risk management. Dr. Crosby is not only an academic, he manages his own fund, He's a New York Times bestseller, and now he's written his latest book, The Laws of Wealth, Psychology and the Secret to Investing Success. I first came across Dr. Crosby, like all good millennial love stories, on Twitter. And uh, after a few messages back and forth reading through his stuff, I saw he had a book. I read it, and it was amazing. Many readers ask me all the time, what book would you recommend I read after your podcasts? And I ask them, what do you like about investing? What do you like reading about? What do you like listening to in the podcast episodes? Because investing is a very broad topic. There's so many different areas, and it's hard to find a general book. But listeners, I found the best general book that I've come across to date. It is such a wonderful book to read because it not only applies trading psychology to investing, but it also takes it to the next step and tells you how to work with our psychological biases, how to work with our psychological wiring to produce better investment decisions. To tease you a bit before we get into the interview, I want to read to you a quote from his book. Quote, There is simply no escaping the fact that managing human behavior is the keystone to being a successful investor. No level of investment skill, which is rare on its own, is sufficient to overcome the cancer of bad behavior. This is from Dr. Crosby's book, The Laws of Wealth, Psychology, and the Secret to Investing Success, which we're about to speak with uh, Daniel about. But before we get to the interview, I want to address the elephant in the room. Where has the podcast been? Why has there been no episode for the past year and a half? And I have good news for you on that. Many of you know I'm the founder of Tingo.com, T-I-I-N-G-O.com, as you can tell from the podcast cover, and the podcast falls under that. Well, Tingo, the platform, the goal is to bring high-end tools to everybody, has doing has been doing very well, and it's gotten a lot of my time. We've deployed to 14 universities, asked to speak at Microsoft Build, um, been building out different API products for those programmers out there, and successfully built a market connectivity infrastructure that gives us pure market data right at the exchange data source. So there have been many, many different things, and the company's been doing uh, very well, and I'm so grateful, and a huge part of that is the support you all have given me through the podcast. I've actually uh, made some good lifelong friends already through this podcast uh, just by meeting people, and now uh, I've been to California, I met a few people there, and I met a good friend now in D.C. who was a listener, and now we're like really good friends, we like text every day. So it's been an absolute pleasure, and a huge reason I'm back is many of you have emailed me, asked me when's the next episode coming, and for that, I am so, so grateful, and I'm really looking forward to doing this more regularly now that things have settled in, the business is stable, um, and I'm really looking forward to bringing back the cookie analogies. So don't worry, they're coming back. Uh, one listener said she was feeling anxiety because she was worried. I may not make another episode again, and well, hopefully this will absolve some of that. So let's go ahead and get started with the interview. And just a quick heads up on that, throughout the interview, I'll be cutting back to sort of give context to some of the answers and some of the questions uh, Daniel and I are discussing. 
This is just to give some more background information that will hopefully provide a different perspective and also help set the groundwork for what we're discussing and why it's so cool. All right, everyone, let's get started. Podcast listeners, I am excited to bring with you Dr. Daniel Crosby. He is a New York Times bestseller who has studied behavioral psychology and has not only excelled as an economist, but has taken his knowledge to help us make better investment decisions. He's given TED Talks, consulted for national governments, and is the president and founder of Nocturne Capital, a wealth management firm. So today's episode, we're going to be discussing investment psychology and how our brains prevent us from making money and how we can harness our brains to combat those biases in order to make us better investors. And I am thrilled with you to have Dr. Daniel Crosby because his book titled The Laws of Wealth, Psychology and the Secret to Investing Success was an absolute joy to read. And many of the listeners here, many of you all constantly ask me, what book should I read? And I often ask you, well, what kind of investment styles are you into? Because there is no real good general book about investment that applies to many different styles. Well, I can proudly say that that Daniel's book has been the first for me in that. This will be the book that I recommend every listener here today, if you want to further your education, that this is a must read. And uh, Daniel, you know this as much as I do. I probably I probably have 100 books of investing on my bookshelf. I've probably read double that. And there's a lot of terrible material, or a lot of it's sold as get rich quick. And what I found about your book is that you do the complete opposite. In fact, the same core books, including more the less mainstream people like Philip Tetlock on prediction, you quote all of these people. Everyone in your book quoted is full of inte- intellectual integrity, and I found your book exactly the same, both entertaining and uh, I can't say enough good things about it. So, Dan, let's get Daniel, let's get right into it. Why did you write this book? I, I wrote the book for the, the very reason you said, I think. You know, um, uh, two big reasons. I think a lot of the books on behavioral finance, which is the discipline in which I work, uh, were, were great books, but they were very, very academic. And they didn't have a lot of so what. There wasn't a lot of application to it. So I wanted to write a book that was applicable and concrete. Uh, and then the second piece was, like you said, there's another sort of subgenre or class of business books and investment books that are just sort of shady snake oil sales. And so I wanted my book to be uh, rigorous and academic and thorough, but also readable and fun. And uh, I really appreciate the, the ringing endorsement. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I have to say your, your writing style definitely caught me off guard. Um, you know, you're an academic and I, I feel like you're an academic who's a practitioner. And I've read a lot of academics in finance and the material is very dry. And I can say yours is not dry. In fact, like a few sentences you have, like accidentally shooting a bow and arrow into your pool cover. I literally said aloud a few expletives like what the because it was just it just caught me off guard and I found it super entertaining. Um, and I guess my question is, well, uh, you, you've written a lot about investment psychology, or, or that's what you're trained in, and sort of what did you really want to accomplish out of this particular book? Because your other books you've co-wrote have been New York Times bestsellers, and what exactly about this book that are you hoping every reader Well, um, for, for you to be a successful investor, um, you have to manage your, your wealth. You know, you have to make investment decisions, create portfolios, pick stocks, but you also have to manage yourself. And so I tried to create a book that, you know, part one is all about managing yourself. It's these 10 commandments of investor behavior. Uh, you know, what are sort of 10 timeless principles to live by in terms of planning and decision making. And then part two is what can social psychology, what can uh, behavioral finance tell us about how to improve uh, active investment management. 
And so if you, if you can do those two things well, you're going to be in good stead. And so I wanted a book that could, that could convey both of those ideas. Yeah, so to crystallize it, the first idea is how can we manage ourselves? And the second part is how can we use that to excel in investment management? How can we take those points and then be aware of them and use that yeah, for well our said. advantage? Great, because I, you know, I think um, I tell people this all the time. I think traders have some of the best under, well, good traders, I should say, uh, have some of the best understanding of our brains and psychological bias. Because in order to make money, you have to be aware of everything. I think um, one of my favorite examples is that we assign a higher probability to events that are stronger in memory. So even if they're rare events. Like it's the reason people won't invest right after 08 is that they think that may happen again. Yeah, it's so there, there's sort of two things happening with an 08. The first is the, the very thing you talked about is we tend to view events, um, we tend to weight events as more or less likely in our heads uh, depending on how salient they are or how easily we can come up with a story around it. Um, and of course, bad stories stick with us longer than good stories. And so something like a 2008 especially depending on how old you are. I know you have a lot of uh, younger sort of millennial listeners. Um, you know, if that was your first experience investing and then suddenly you get uh, rolled under the bus, I mean, that's going to stick with you. Uh, and, and then the second thing is we tend to extrapolate the, the present into the future indefinitely. And so in 2008, it, it, it truly did feel like the world was never going to get better. Um, and because we think that the way things are is the way that they will always be, um, when in extreme cases, they tend to mean revert or become just the opposite. And we, we certainly saw that with the market. It's interesting you say that because I know some of the listeners are younger, but I remember, you know, I guess the analogy mm. for me would be the tech bubble crash, where I don't necessarily remember exactly what went on, but I do remember how my family was impacted. I do remember my parents not wanting to get into markets. And I think a lot of listeners here may not remember the exact events or some of the younger listeners who may just be graduating universities. Uh, may not remember what exactly took place, but I'm sure they remember the feeling, the emotions it created in their parents, and that probably yeah. Well, an emotion, uh, emotion is a lot stickier than fact. You know, those uh, those sort of generalized feelings can stick with you far more than say a factor a figure would. So I think that's a great point. Rules to any trader or investor are some of the most important things you can have. What they do is they give you a risk framework to tell you what to do if this happens. Now, for those of you who invested or traded before, how many times have you experienced where you're in a, let's say, stock? Let's say you're an Apple or any sort of stock and the price drops and you're like, you know what? I'm going to hold out for one more week and if it doesn't come up, I'm going to sell. But another week goes by, it drops a little bit more and you keep saying the same thing. What rules do is they help us keep ourselves accountable. Now, rules don't just matter for the discretionary guys out there. In fact, they're just as important for the quantitative or algorithmic guys. And I don't just mean coding up a rule, programming it, because that's obvious. What I mean is questions like, well, how do you know if your trading strategy or trading algorithm stops working? This is one of the most unanswered questions in quantitative trading. Everyone sort of has their own method of dealing with it. Everyone sort of has their own rule book. But the point is, is that there are rules to help keep yourselves accountable. In the next section, Dr. Crosby's book goes into his Ten Commandments, rules that we can hold ourselves to or rules that we can consider to make our life and investment process better. Now, I say life because a lot of the rules uh, Dr. Crosby talks about go much further than investing, and that's one of the reasons I absolutely love this book. So his ten rules are, rule number one, 
you control what matters most. Rule number two, you cannot do this alone. Rule number three, trouble is opportunity. Rule number four, if you're excited, it's a bad idea. Rule number five, you are not special. Don't worry, you are special in other ways, but in investing, as Dr. Crosby will explain, he means something different. Rule number six, your life is the best benchmark. Rule number seven, forecasting is for weathermen. Rule number eight, excess is never permanent. Rule number nine, diversification means always having to say you're sorry. Rule number 10, risk is not a squiggly line. Each of these rules is a chapter in his book, so in the following question, we ask Daniel which one of his rules are his favorite. You know, going through those those 10 uh, points, if you were to pick out two things, uh, two of those 10, what do you think is the most common that plagues all investors or traders? And the second, which one of those do you think is the most dangerous? Oh, geez, it's hard to, hard to pick a favorite, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, pick, a, I'll pick a couple. So, you know, I'll start <laughs> with the first of the Ten Commandments because I think it's very misunderstood. You know, the first is you control what matters most. You know, so studies show that if you ask people, um, you know, uh, what's going to be the best predictor whether you not you reach your financial goals, you know, they're going to say stuff like, well, what do I get bull or bear markets? Um, you know, what does Janet Yellen do? What does President-elect Trump uh, do? God knows, right? So, um, so what, what, to, what, uh, what is the future going to be like? And that's what they're going to attribute to their success or failure to. Um, but the, the fact is, the best, predictor, uh, the best predictor of whether or not you reach your goals is just simple stuff like the decisions you make. Like, are you able to take that long-term view? Are you able to stay the course? You know, do you choose to work with a financial advisor who's going to keep you, uh, keep you grounded and keep you in your seat? Um, these sorts of things, the behavioral side is much more predictive of whether or not you reach your goals uh, than, than sort of the economic conditions. And yet we spend so much time, uh, you know, worrying about economic conditions, trying to time the next crash, um, and, and very little time disciplining ourselves to stay the course, to set aside a little money every month to try and reduce our expenses. And uh, it's kind of uh, it's kind of bass backwards, as we say in in the South. Um, and so the the second one, uh, or it's actually commandment number five, but I think it's probably one of the most uh, important ones. Uh, it says you are not special. Um, you know, I have this whole TED talk. Um, the, the first TED talk I ever did was called "You're Not That Great," um, and it was all about sort of combating overconfidence and how how combating overconfidence in our lives can can lead to much better lives. And so, you are not special. Being a behavioral investor means owning from the outset uh, that you are susceptible to all the same rules as everyone else, and that you're playing the same game. So uh, everybody knows a lot of what they're supposed to do. You know, everyone knows they're supposed to set aside money every month. Everyone knows they're supposed to diversify. And yet, you know, I spoke to someone this week who has $5 million uh, in, in one stock, you know, one stock, their entire, you know, their entire wealth in one what? stock because uh, that's, that's where they work and they think it's going to do well. And people, people, you know, if you ask this gentleman, you know, don't, don't you and know then, about the principles of diversification? He could read you chapter and verse about diversification. He just thinks the rules don't apply to him. And so sort of disabusing ourselves of this notion that, that bad stuff can't happen to us is something we need to do early, early and often as behavioral investors. 
Yeah, and some of those uh, listeners who are listening in, uh, the reason you especially don't want to put all your money in a stock for the company you work for is, well, now both your salary and retirement are tied into that company. So should that company go bankrupt, well, you just kind of got doubly screwed. And so you're bringing up, I think, something that goes beyond investing. And I think this is true of your book in general, is while investing is, is the core theme and wealth generation and, and wealth protection, I notice some of your things apply greater than that. For example, where you say, we know we're supposed to diversify, but then we don't. And I think that applies to a principle that I think um, a lot of us who have gone, and uh, I think I'm probably going to speak to the younger millennial people here who I, I jokingly say, like, you know, people ask me, when did you start Tingo? And I often say, well, before I started Tingo, I went through a six-month period of doing the whole millennial find yourself thing. I think one thing I realized through all that, and many people, I think all sorts of people can relate to, is that there is a difference between intellectual mm. knowing and experiencing and then executing. That's something the previous one, Mandra, used to say. He's like, everyone thinks they're a unique snowflake, but they're not. And I would always take issue with this because I'm like, well, no, I am a unique snowflake. And, uh, and, and, and what I mean by that is I think you're absolutely right that we are all subject to the same rules and constraints are what really produce creativity, right? You see it among artists. Like people think artists are all over the place, but the best ones have a clear process. And I think when you have those constraints, that's when you can really flourish. Like once you, since you're right, we all have the same psychological biases. Like once we can understand those, if we have a specialty in biotech or if we have a medical background, we can then use those rules to help us make us better in that one specific thing. Um, and I, I have to say, you know, when, when you talk about we're not that special and then we also have to, you know, if some of us have wealth um, advisors, I find a lot of the best wealth managers think that they're special. A friend said it to me best. He said, you know, Rishi, I learned something. All my friends in wealth management and hedge funds are possibly the best sellers I've ever met. And he said, think about it. They have to convince you to give for you to give them all your money and lock it up for two years. Right. And it takes a special kind of person to say, yeah, you should give me all of your money and lock it up for two years. And so sometimes I think the wealth managers that appeal to us the most are probably the ones exhibiting the most overconfidence. And in your book, I believe you uh, quote Tetlock that says people who have more overconfidence are even worse at prediction. So I guess my question for you is how do we sort of evaluate a good fund manager and sort of move through all the charisma, move through, move all of that aside? People really applaud certainty. You know, we really, um, we really are drawn to people who are certain and are confident. And we really despise flip-flopping and uncertainty, even when it's scientific, right? I mean, even when we're just being sort of appropriately uh, circumspect um, and, and thinking in terms of probability and not making calls. So we, you know, part two of the book it talks about the processes by which you would evaluate a, a fund manager um, because it's a tricky thing on, t on at least two fronts. So, you know, first you've got the confidence thing there. We've got your, the, your natural human tendency is going to be drawn to the, mo the people who are the most confident. And so when you say the best fund managers you know are extremely cocky, I, I would say probably the most financially successful fund managers I know are very cocky. Uh, but but the best ones from a performance perspective are often quite humble. So we have to you know balance that human leaning to want to go with someone who's overconfident uh, with our understanding that hey we need someone who's going to look at this uh, from all angles. 
you know, when I worked at a bank, a lot of those people, the ones who lost money were often the ones who were shouting and running all over the place and, and making a big scene of things. And when I found really successful fund managers, they were quiet and people in the industry knew of them, well, yeah, but they and, just you know, didn't you go talked, in the media. Uh, they just sort of kept before. a very private life outside of finance and I hope that that's the case ultimately money is necessary but not sufficient at all uh, to have a good life so you know what I've tried to do here is do exactly what you talked about earlier put some constraints on the money management and self-management piece so you can uh, make that money maximize your returns but then go live your life and do other stuff because I mean frankly the stuff uh, in this book I mean, you need it in some respect. I'm not impractical. We all need money. Um, but it's not, it doesn't do much to contribute to a meaningful life. So I, I, probably, I probably care about uh, as little about money as anyone you know who writes a book called The Laws of Wealth. I, I think that's going to speak to a lot of people listening here is that, you know, for us, a lot of people I've spoken to, and I think this is an issue with our education, you know, I went to public school, so I know this is true for public school, but financial literacy isn't in the curriculum like sciences. We're learning science from like the first grade, but we're not learning every, anything about finance until we get to university, if we go to university, where we get to choose if we want to learn about it. Another issue is, is because we spoke about 08 and because we spoke about 01 and a lot of people um, who are entering the world of finance or people are now at the state where they have disposable income, they don't feel, they, they historically just saw finance as evil or, or Wall Street as evil and tried to separate themselves. But now many of us yeah. find us, ourselves in a spot where we have this cash, but we know it's not supposed to be in cash. And I think we all just want to live our lives, but make sure that we can retire and have enough saved up. In your book, you have a few sentences that I think go unnoticed but are extremely profound. One of them is regarding indices. You mentioned mean reversion earlier, but I've been quick in my earlier episodes to just throw shade on the Dow and how it's a price-weighted index and it's awful. And then I brought the S&P 500. But one thing I haven't done is bring up the criticisms of the S&P 500, which I think you so eloquently put, and I would be disheartened if everyone read your book and read those sentences without pausing to reflect on how profound this is. And so what, what I'm looking at, the problems with passive indexing, uh, first of all, I believe that it's a, a misnomer um, because there's really no such thing as a truly passive portfolio. So when you look at a passive portfolio, I think a lot of people think, uh, first of all, that it's sort of mined from the earth and the, the S&P 500 just sort of exists, you know, exists organically in this natural form. Uh, but you have to understand that the way that the S&P 500 <laughs> is constructed is there's a panel, a, se a secret panel um, of experts who put together these indices. And so these experts, first of all, are subject to all the same idiocy and irrationality that you and I are subject to. And they, they often break their own rules. You know, they break their own rules. They broke their own rules about profitability <laughs> to add AOL right before AOL got crushed. Uh, you know, for instance, in, 19, uh, in 1995, 12% uh, of the, the new additions to the S&P 500 were tech plays. Uh, but by 2000, when tech is getting frothy, um, nearly 50% of the additions uh, were, were tech plays. And so, again, they chase returns. They buy high and sell low. They break their own rules to put unprofitable companies on. Uh, and because the S&P 500 is, is weighted 
by the capitalization size. Basically, it's weighted by how big the companies are. Um, the bigger a company gets and the more expensive it gets, uh, the larger a share of the S&P 500 it takes up. So all of the research says that small stocks outperform and cheap value stocks outperform. So when you're buying an S&P 500 index fund, you're buying uh, big, uh, big expensive stocks. Basically, you're you're overweight big expensive stocks, and you see the you saw this in 2000. You were overweight technology. You saw this in 2008. You were overweight financials. So uh, the the good parts about indexing are that it's low, uh, you know, low cost typically. Uh, it's low cost. It's low turnover. It tends to be tax efficient, and those are all important things. You could do you know you could do a lot worse. Than getting exposure to the market via the S and P 500, uh, but but for all of its, uh, but, but for all the nice parts about it, there are some sort of behavioral quirks with it. And I, I agree, this is a part of the book that, as I've done 20, 30 podcasts about the book, uh, no nobody brings this up. It kind of gets glossed over. To to discuss a couple parts of this, what I loved what you just said is sort of making the S and P. A business, right? People look at it as almost like, oh, it's an index. It's like a public utility, or it's a, it's, it's something full of intellectual integrity. But I can tell you from my experience of running a, a fintech company and also trading is that the way these um, companies make their money is that they license out the data. So a fund, for a fund to use the S and P, they have to license it. Um, in order to use the name, the trademark, and and in order to make investment decisions. And on top of that, uh, when I was at a bank, you know, in order to see the constituents and what weighting they make in the S&P 500, you also have to purchase that. And that is not a cheap subscription. Um, often traders, because ETFs uh, are disclosed, they'll use um, the weightings given by an index ETF to proxy it. But if you're a bank, you can't use those proxies, right? So you essentially have to... Um, you have to pay them licensing fees. And so it would make a lot of sense to me that they do have to market their index. For all of the wonderful things about passive investing, and there are many, primarily to do with diversification and low fees, um, a lot of the popularity that indexing is experiencing right now is a result of short-term thinking. I mean, um, it's been popular for the last seven years because it's done extremely well. And there's been no better way to beat the market um, or uh, being the market has beaten 85% of active managers um, over the last 10 years because it's been, you know, straight up for much of that time. <laughs> that, that won't always be the case. And inevitably, when the next crash comes, people who have an index fund are going to be overweight, big, expensive stocks, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt. And it's, it's interesting because it seems like the benefits of an index fund really go into what you're trying to communicate with people is diversification, um, understanding your psychology. And one way of doing that is having a systematic process. And I think even, you know, even with the biases of clearly the S&P selection committee and the lack of transparency, it does sort of create this diversification. One truism is as soon as everyone knows that it's the right thing to do, it ceases to be the right thing to do. And, and, and right now, everybody knows that what you do is you buy an S&P 500 uh, index fund and you ride it, you know, you ride it for the rest <laughs> of your life. Um, and so I think that ceases to be the right thing to do. But what you can do is you can look at that and say, look, there's a lot to emulate here. You know, diversification is important. Uh, and that uh, the S&P 500 provides that. So I'm going to go do that. 
you know, a rules-based approach is important to manage behavioral bias. I'm going to go do that. Um, but for all that, uh, managing fees is important. I'm going to go do that. But for all that, there's a, there's a better way, I think, that, that honors the, the likable parts uh, of indexing, but introduces some more behavioral sophistication. This is what makes Daniel's book so wonderful. He gets us to question not only ourselves, but also these benchmarks that we take for granted. Markets are not science, they're all models, and they're all imprecise. Our goal is to find inefficiencies or ways in which we can invest in companies long term that make us money. But we often measure ourselves against certain metrics that we take to be, in a way, we kind of know internally, maybe the back of our mind, that they're not perfect, but we assume that they're objective measures. But if we actually look at it, these are not objective measures. They're metrics that are made by companies who market, who make money, who want people to use these objective measures. It's sort of like looking at the 2008 financial crisis. The rating agencies who were supposed to rate debt were, supposed to, were treated as objective measures. But really, there was a lot of stuff going on where if they gave a company an unfavorable rating, that maybe that company wouldn't use them in the future, or that financial institution wouldn't use them in the future. So these are not objective measures put forth by an independent, nonpartisan organization. These are objective measures that we use that are put forth by companies. And within those companies, people themselves have psychological biases. For example, the inclusion of AOL or inclusion of tech companies when they were peaking. And this is a theme that's pretty consistent across the book, The Laws of Wealth, is that it's not just about questioning ourselves, it's about questioning the processes in this world, understanding how that can impact our portfolio from a psychological standpoint. From a bigger standpoint than just day-to-day -day interactions, but looking at these interactions within organizations, within communities, within firms. Uh, within our families, within our financial advisors. So Daniel doesn't just stop at these are things that we need to do to hold ourselves accountable, but even the things we're using to hold ourselves accountable have psychological flaws that are caused because we're all human. And Daniel's book isn't written that we should ignore all of these. No, it's a framework to work within all of this because we can't just suddenly change the world with a snap of our fingers, right? We have to work within it and then change within it, but that takes time. So in the interim, Daniel's book is extremely practical on how to do this. For example, one of the ways that Daniel talks about besides using benchmarks or the S&P is making it very personal. I'm about to read to you some statistics that are from uh, Daniel's book, The Law of Wealth, Psychology and the Secret to Investing Success. And when he was talking about personal benchmarks, this is the research he found. This is the results of what he found. Quote, of those in a single traditional investment portfolio, 50% chose to fully liquidate their portfolios or at least their equity portfolios, including many high net worth clients who had no immediate need for cash. 10% made significant changes in their equity allocation, reducing it by 25% or more. Now, of those clients, in a goals-based investment strategy, and this is the personal benchmark that Daniel talks about in his book, quote, of those in a goals-based investment strategy, 75% made no changes, 20% decided to increase the size of their immediate needs pool, but left their longer-term assets fully invested. And these are during, end quote, these are during times of equity volatility. 
So using these extremes shows us that when we move away from these quote-unquote objective be benchmarks, which are not really objective, we can actually use our behavior and our psychology to improve our investment process. One way he talks about this is rule number six, your life is the best benchmark which moves away from these benchmark or S&P-based results to a needs-based, which I imagine anecdotally causes less stress because you're sort of measuring against, this is what I want to retire with, this is the amount of money I want to have, how do I get there, what's the best way to do? And it's interesting that the psychology behind it leads to better performance because we take actions differently. And his book is filled with so many of these, and this is why I cannot go on uh, enough about it. All right, moving on to the next section. All right, so Daniel, I, I love this stuff about the S&P, but there is, I did say there were a couple things that were extremely profound in your book. And before we sort of get into um, how we can make good uh, asset selection, one thing I think is important is how we quantify risk. How do we get a number where we understand um, what's risky, what's not, how does it make my gut feel, and, and, and along those lines. And I've dedicated an entire episode to volatility because I've traded quantitatively, I've to me, volatility is like the mathematical way to express it. But your book opened me up to this different concept, and I absolutely loved it. It was about the criticisms of volatility, and we all know the basic, you know, people who, even quantitative traders know the, the, the basic uh, limitations of volatility, but we speak about it in statistical terms, which is unlike anything you've brought up in your book, and we say it isn't like, oh, you know, volatility, it's based on this historical number and it can sometimes be wrong or um, the market can misprice volatility. But you're saying something different. You're talking about how volatility can, the whole concept cannot be applicable um, in certain situations. And I would love for you to just let the listeners know your take on this. Yeah, so um, what you're talking about is volatility is a proxy for risk. So for, for the listeners... You know, a lot of smart people built academic careers on trying to define risk. And of course, you're going to want to do that in an investment scenario. And they sort of settled on volatility or sort of the up and down uh, of a security uh, for a proxy for its risk. Now, there's some intuitive appeal there, but it falls pretty short. And, you know, it's good for building models, but it doesn't, doesn't hold up uh, very well. And I think there's a couple of reasons why. Um, first of all, uh, people create these low vol and other funds um, based on the idea that volatility will be what it ever was. And there's just not a whole lot of research to say that that's the case. Uh, you know, uh, so if a stock hasn't been all that volatile uh, heretofore, you know, uh, you get a stock like a Samsung or something and they create the Galaxy Note 7 that burns your face off and, you know, suddenly... <laughs> Suddenly, it's yeah. volatile, and so nothing about uh, you know nothing about the historical uh, up and down moves of that security prepares you for the the volatility that's to come. So uh, it's not it's not very predictive uh, from a from a financial planning standpoint. It has nothing to do uh, with a long term investor. You know the the long term investor from just a personal standpoint uh, should define risk as the likelihood that they will or won't be able to meet their their goals and you know so so your personal goals come in you know if you uh if you don't have have great big dreams you just want to live in a modest house and 
you know, go to Taco Tuesday or whatever, your uh, <laughs> your your risk is going to look different than someone else who has a much more grand life planned. Um, so personal variables like your war chest and your dreams come in come into account. And then as an asset manager, I think it ignores some fundamental uh, fundamental elements of risk that we should be looking at. I mean, there's some really great measures of, uh, say, bankruptcy risk and default risk uh, that I look at uh, that uh, that I consider very real forms of risk, you know, because I look from an asset management standpoint uh, as risk as permanent loss of capital. Um, you know, if that stock goes to zero or it's not coming back or it drops dramatically and it's not coming back because of fundamental problems, uh, that, that's risk to me, not the fact that it may gyrate. I love this section particularly in Daniel's book because it covered something that we call event risk. And he did an amazing job describing the psychological biases and how we become overly reliant on certain system, systematic rules. And this is why understanding our psychology is so, so important. Because we may think we understand the world, we may think we know what's going to happen, and then suddenly what do you do, what's your process for something that totally, totally disrupts your way of viewing the world? Or what do you do, how do you stay calm in these situations? How do you think rationally? One such thing, like we mentioned in the uh, previous break, rule number six, measure yourself by a personal benchmark. This is why on Wall Street you'll see veterans or former people who served in the armed forces or you may see professional athletes because they are trained in these situations that catch us off guard how to stay calm and how to progress forward. Now of course there's a lot of other stuff that has to be filled in the gaps but that, that, that framework, that psychological framework is so beneficial and to those of us who haven't had those life experiences uh, being aware and practicing things that Daniel is saying and, and he's mentioned in his book The Laws of Wealth are, are so crucial. In the specific event uh, with the Samsung Galaxy example uh, catching on fire or these unpredictable events that market models can't predict we call these certain events black swan events or event risk. Black swan events are events we did not really predict could happen, or the vast majority of the world believed that it would not happen. One classic example is a 2008 financial crisis. You can make the argument that some people knew about it and made money off of it, but the vast majority of the world didn't see it. Or you can make another event like the BP oil spill. Well, oil spills are pretty common, right? I mean, unfortunately, they're common, they happen. But what made the BP spill so different? Well, people didn't really take into account the difficulty of repairing the oil spill, the massive amount of oil that was spilled, and the political ramifications, the economic ramifications, and the company ramifications. So black swan events are these events that catch us off guard. Now event risk are these events that we know are coming up that depending on the outcomes, could significantly change the future or not. Now, one example is Brexit. We knew the Brexit vote was coming up. People placed bets, you know, if it would happen or not. Most of the world expected it didn't happen. But during that time, when, when they were counting all the votes, markets didn't really know where to go. So there was not much being traded. People were waiting for waiting the result. And when it did come out, it still shocked us. But we knew that it was coming up. That's event risk. People may wonder, well, what about Trump winning? Well, that's not really event risk. Because Brexit was had a much more significant political impact. It was immediate, right? Whereas Trump winning, you still have many checks and balances. We're still the republic. It'd be the equivalent of, let's say, the northeastern part of the U.S. deciding to leave the union. And that would be a major event risk because it would happen immediately. But one political person winning over the other isn't really a significant risk on our political system. Uh, well, in this case, it wasn't. And many of you may be wondering, how can you say that? Of course it is. 
Well, we still have a Congress that's in power. We still have all these other checks and balances. So when you compare Brexit to Trump winning from a political standpoint, nobody's really leaving the U.S. Nobody's really leaving the Union. We're having a change in power. Right. So the event risk, even though it caught people off guard, you noticed markets moved quickly that evening because the market didn't expect it. And then it sort of stabilized. And that's one way of looking as well, even though it was the unpredicted outcome, ultimately in the grand scheme of maybe the next year or two, markets aren't really predicting a significant uh, increase or decrease based off that reaction. So what Dr. Daniel is saying, this is why it's so important, is that these event risks, these black swan events, things that don't really we can't account for. Well, how do you model that? And you can't. This is the thing where you hear about hedge funds blowing up because they got in these bets or things going against people's favor in significant ways that bring down funds or hedge funds or um, people's investment portfolios. Maybe your friends have been in this. These are the events where the models, even as rigorous as you can be, could not predict such an outcome. When I was trading at a bank, we had these derivatives called VAR swaps. What that means is the payoff was the difference in volatility squared. Now, I'll ignore all the uh, complicated side of it because it's not important here, but just know if you lost 10%, it was squared. Or if you gained or lost, it was squared. So if you had a VAR swap on, let's say, Apple, and Apple dropped 5%, it would be 5% squared, so you lost 25%. If Apple dropped 10%, well, you just lost the entire 100%. Of course, on the bank side, there were certain protections in place that could prevent a huge blowup, but it still led to blowups. And the biggest risk we had when trading those was event risk, something that we could not predict would happen. The market didn't even know could happen. And in those cases, these are the real limitations of volatility. And when these events happen, we have to stay calm. We have to find a way to anchor ourselves psychologically to be able to handle and see clearly. And these are the things that Dr. Daniel Crosby's book, The Laws of Wealth, go into. Now here, I'm going to stop this podcast because this is, this is part one. I have to admit something. When I was recording this interview with uh, Daniel, out of nowhere, the recording software went nuts. And this has never happened before, uh, not just on this podcast, but other calls where I'm working with people and we record it. And it's not happened before. But Dr. Crosby graciously agreed that we would re-record part two. And in that part two, we discover other aspects of his book. I highly recommend, even before part two comes out, you go and buy the book. The link will be in the description. I honestly cannot recommend this book enough. This book is just so good, and I highly recommend. Those of you who know me know that I very rarely recommend books, and this one, I believe, is recommended reading for almost everybody, no matter what your experience level is in markets, even if you don't know anything, even if you haven't listened to the previous episodes. This book will just get the way you change not only investing, but the way you carry your life, and I found it so wonderful. And those of you who know me know that I love that kind of stuff. But here are the other things I could discuss. The next is managing behavioral risk, or as Dr. Crosby describes it, Behavioral risk is the potential for your actions to increase the probability of permanent loss of capital. For example, selling at the worst time in market, selling at the bottom of 08. Of course, Dr. Crosby is very, very practical in his application, and he follows it up with the four C's of rule-based behavioral investing. These help you manage that behavioral risk, the risk that tells you to sell at the worst time, the risk that tells you to buy at the worst time. And then Dr. Crosby takes it directly into stock selection, directly into equity investing with what he describes as the five P's of equity investing. The aim of the five P's, to quote the book, is to tilt probability in your favor when selecting stocks and recognizing that the five P's may not always work and understanding the framework, the psychology, the rules, where they come from. 
So once again, the book is The Laws of Wealth, Psychology, and the Secret to Investing Success. You can find a link to the book on Amazon in the uh, description of this podcast. And I really, really hope you all enjoyed the coming back of this podcast. And if you have any feedback, please email me, rishi at tingo.com. That's R-I-S-H-I at T-I-I-N-G-O dot com.